Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Each week, we showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Please visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can download a playlist of all the episodes. We also invite you to join our monthly podcast discussion club, and we welcome being asked to speak to your organization or group. If you are an author with a book about women, check out our sponsor opportunities. So today we are delighted to welcome Ronnie Hartfield, age 84. Ronnie is a legend for her skills in developing strategies that's for strengthening, strengthening access and inclusion for a wider range of audiences in the arts and in religion. Ronnie pursued this mission in three key positions, Executive Director of Urban Gateways, Dean of Students and Professor at the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Women's Board Endowed Executive Director for Museum Education, also at the Art Institute. Along the way, Ronnie's studies led to a position at Harvard University in the Center for the Study of World Religion. Since 2000, Ronnie has carried out her multifaceted work supported by fellowships and scholarships. She wrote a moving memoir about her mother, Another Way Home, The Tangled Roots of Race in One Chicago Family, now in its fifth printing. With her husband of 67 years, Ronnie has raised four children. She was a stay-at-home mom for 12 years and experiences the joys of, of being with her eight grandchildren. So, Ronnie, welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. We're honored to have you with us and so eager to hear about the strands that weave together what you call your your unscripted life. So um, rather than starting with the the full history or the beginning, uh, why don't you give us a glimpse into, let's say, the past 20 years since you retired from uh, full-time positions and, and your what, what, what's carrying forward from your earlier endeavors and what continues to, to drive you now? Well, for me, I, I didn't. What I mean by unscripted is I didn't plan my 20 years following retirement, except that I knew I was going to write this book. And that was, I'd been thinking about it and taking notes on it for years. And I had this notion that having retired, I got a small grant, I was really going to finish that. Um, but I really had no idea that uh, this one side of my life story would sort of flourish in the way that it did in the last 20 years. And that is my concern for sacred art in particular, um, for art that evinces the sacred is the way I think about it. And uh, I had been kind of working toward um, a dissertation in that arena, had to stop that. Um, but then I got this wonderful job at Harvard uh, through the good graces of a former colleague in grad school. 
And um, it was really about how a new museum of world religions needed to think about the exhibition and interpretation of sacred art from many traditions. So I got kind of plunged into that new arena. And uh, at the end of that project, which was at first national and then international, um, I, I got these wonderful fellowships to work on, on that, in that arena uh, in many different places and uh, actually published uh, a small book from my fellowship project, which was at Harvard and had to do with um, notions of art and society, really, uh, sacred art and how art reflects the continuing um, presence and implication of religion. So that was a great thing. That was very exciting that, that I was able to get funding for that. Um, so all of a sudden, I found myself in a position of consulting with museums in different places about this, this concern for respectful interpretation and exhibition of sacred art. And it's a kind of fascinating arena because of course, people understand their local artworks. They, and they understand local expressions, but in many instances, they look on expressions of art of the sacred in, in other traditions as being exotic or, um, or worse in some way cartoon-like. So, uh, so I had to kind of really explore that with a lot of different people in, uh, in many different settings. Uh, the, one of the big ones that sort of emerged in these last years has been at the University of Chicago. Uh, and I had been, I got my graduate degree there, of course, in 1982 as a returning scholar. And I can tell you that was a big adventure because I was so concerned that I would be old and outmoded entering graduate school at the age of 41. Um, but it turned out that my experience in creating projects and personal projects and working civically was valuable in graduate school and helping me to study with more tools than I might have had if I'd been younger. So all of that was terrific. And it kind of morphed into working with a great um, scholar, Martin Marty, who decided that he was going to start something on religion and public life. And, and then having known that I was interested in religion and certainly active in public life, that I might have something to contribute to that initiative. So I worked with that for several years um, and really enjoyed that because it was a learning experience working with graduate students who were interested in, uh, what should I call it, enlarging their endeavors for public uh, attention. Uh, many of those students were somewhat parochial in their thinking. Uh, one even said to me, I'm only writing for my students, whoever they might end up being. And he was very surprised that Marty and others in the Divinity School were asking him to think about his work 
and its implications in a wider public and for a wider public. So it was that kind of activity that I got very involved in for several years, and I learned enormously from that. Um, and that sort of morphed into a couple of other things. Uh, I found myself moving into consultancies that were particular to some areas, uh, geographic and historical uh, differences. For example, I got involved in a project in Charleston, South Carolina, um, which uh, is courtesy of a former student of mine who's a painter and very active down there. Uh, and he got involved in a, a project on the history of rice cultivation uh, in that area, uh, beginning with slavery. One learned then that the cultivation of rice was brought here by slaves. Um, and so I met a lot of people who were working at that and got very involved with that. And then I met a man through that who was doing a project on transferring or translating scriptures into visual images. And uh, about mm -hmm. a month ago in my mail, I suddenly got this book. And I thought, where did this book come from? A huge coffee table book with all these beautiful um, portraits in it. And it was a book that had emerged from that project. It's all scriptural interpretations. So things like that with a very nice kind of note thanking me for my role in it. And so all these things have just sort of emerged in ways that I didn't plan but certainly I was growing all the time and refining my own thinking and therefore I think more useful to everything that came across my screen. I'm, I'm almost speechless because it's your it's such an incredible path uh, the threads and how how you were seemed to be so uh, open to to taking on projects that you obviously had the knowledge base for, but we're bringing you yet into an, another kind of way of expression. And I think you've just given us a, a wonderful uh, picture of your journey. What, what in the introduction, I said you're known for strengthening access and inclusion. And um, so can you just go, go back uh, earlier in your career when you were with Urban Gateways, because you were, you were doing that, you had that kind of mission also. And I, I think um, for people, uh, a lot of our listeners are not in the Chicago area. And I think it would be helpful to know a little bit about Urban Gateways. And the, I think most people know about the Art Institute, but just to give us that context. Well, the Art Institute had more long-term implications, but I couldn't have done my work at the Art Institute without that decade at Urban Gateways because as the head of an organization, which when I first signed on to that job, it was somewhat small and somewhat local. And uh, I was tapped for it um, because I had been a dean in an art school and had gotten a lot of scholarships for students. And um, I had worked for Urban Gateways very part-time 10 years before. Um, so they thought, well, I could bring together those experiences in management and 
kind of developing new funding. Um, so I got in there and found out that what was missing for Urban Gateways was a um, an understanding in its even in its um, philanthropic support base that of the really profound um, educational value of what those artists were doing in schools at the time they started out with just pre uh, getting tickets funded for students to go to large cultural events downtown that's how they started and then they learned that the people running it at the time or the day learned that um, the teachers needed preparation for the students. They needed preparation for themselves. And then they could help prepare the students and they could do follow-up. So that's kind of where it was when I took it on. Um, but one of the genius things they did was to get involved parents so they had a citywide parent council and the parents would at their meetings every month have the same have a version of the same thing their kids were having in school so these various artists would go and put on a program for the parents and the parents would potluck it and it was really a wonderful thing because the parent councils at the time were not so much school-based they met together from all over the city. So it was expensive for, for the parents. Okay, so I come in and I think, what? This thing has some really large potentials. If we can get a partner and develop curriculum materials for what the artists are doing and kind of um, enlarge the language uh, of what was really happening and make it more uh, integral to school systems. So I got the University of Illinois to partner with us. I had taught over there for a little while, knew a few people. Anyway, to make a very long story short, that idea of training every artist who worked for Urban Goodways to work with an education professional and create curriculum um, ended up being, along with the good auspices of the parent councils uh, meant a boom time for urban gateways because then it could be approved by the board of education uh, when they had parents running making decisions about what programs they wanted in their schools we had a ready-made parent base you see and they all voted for us to be uh, funded in their schools and so we grew and grew from being about a million dollars a year to being $8 million a year. Mm. And we began to be important nationally. Um, people looked at Urban Gateways as a role model, different cities and thought, oh, we could do that. And so then I began a consulting career for, and so did some others on our staff people nationally and we would present at national meetings and and so forth so what I learned there was a, a huge upgrade of my management skills of my uh, development fund development skills of my marketing skills um, it was a, a very administrative leap 
for me. That That's the main thing it was for me. For the country, it was a, a huge leap in, uh, I think, helping people understand uh, that the arts were not simply fun and peripheral to student learning. So, Ronnie, when we had our Get Acquainted conversation, you said something that was very intriguing to me about not liking the to make to ter, the term outreach. Yes, and and I could you explain that? Well, to me, that's very significant. Um, you know, I'm one of my little reputations is as a wordsmith. <laughs> so, what that means is. I love language. My father before me loved language, and I think that whole family of the Rones loves language. And my father used to do this little work with me with the uh, vocabulary development from the time I was very small. I was a fanatic reader from the time I learned to read at the age of three, and uh, all my life. And um, my father loved that, and would sort of work with me on understanding through words and the multiple meanings of words. And so as I grew up and began to work in the world, the term outreach became gained a lot of currency. Uh, I think out of really good meaning, the, the, the best kind of intentionalities, uh, a number of projects that had been uh, limited to whatever we might call high culture, um, began to think of themselves as good Samaritans who should uh, expand and uh, extend that culture uh, to wider audiences, most specifically those that we might call under-resourced. The term that was in common use at the time was unprivileged. And it's a term I really dislike um, because I didn't think that poverty kids were unprivileged. I did think they were under-resourced and they had enormous privileges within their own cultural systems. So I didn't like that term. And then the term outreach, which to me obviously relies on a fundamental uh, understanding of whatever you're reaching out from, whatever that institution is, as um, somehow not primarily um, mandated to work with everybody. In other words, my understanding of that term was that, okay, here's the Art Institute of Chicago or the Chicago Symphony or the Lyric Opera, and we've got a mandate here. And our mandate can be uh, larger and maybe more responsible if we include more people. Um, but to reach out to me somehow seemed like a misinterpretation of their mm -hmm. fundamental accountability as public institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, well, I would never use that that term. I think there is a fundamental accountability, and that's mm -hmm. always been part of the base of that I work from. That if you are a public institution, um, you have accountability to others. Period. <laughs> that includes those who are not as familiar, those who are not as resourced those who are excluded often 
um, just by de facto, just de facto. I had an interesting conversation not long ago, maybe two, three years ago, on a board I was on with a major national um, person, writer, uh, journalist that um, they were in correspondence with. And uh, he was questioning the mission of the institution I was working with uh, to try to reach others. And he said, I hate to see this organization water, its, water down what it's doing um, to bring in people, even though that is politically correct. And uh, I then wrote to him as part of my board membership mm -hmm. and said that I totally disagreed with what he was saying and that the, the institution I was working with had no intention to water down anything. In fact, it hoped to enrich what it was doing by having wider audiences with their understandings of what really worked well for them and what might not have, what might be changed or improved or revised. And he was just incensed that I that I had the temerity to write him and disagree with what, with what he said. And he wrote a very uh, unpleasant letter back. Um, so that that notion is still out there. Uh, that, that if you if you really see your your institution as having intrinsically a role in public education, then you're going to have to accept that you're going to water that down. You're going to cheapen what you do. Um, so I've spent my whole life, I, I think, working against that. Yeah, I, I could certainly understand that that thread. You know, in the the few minutes we have left, I would at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned the book that you worked on for many years, and then were got some support so you could devote more time and energy to it. Uh, Another way home is the the main title, and again, when we talked earlier, it it seems like that has become a metaphor for for. Um, at least a helpful metaphor for how you live your life. And I'm just wondering what, what you might share with us about that. Uh, I think it has become a metaphor and post facto, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> I uh, initially had a different title for my book, and I decided it was going to be called Down River, Down Home. Uh, some mm. other people call, when they go back down south, they call it going down home. And then I, I thought it was just too many downs, and then somehow I needed a different title. Um, and so I took my title from a statement that my mother used to use, actually, and uh, from her childhood where she was not allowed to stay in the plantation house her father owned and lived in with his mother. Um, she, her father had had to build a house in a different place for her and her grandmother who raised her. And my mother would say, well, we had another way home. And uh, we were just as happy as clams up there. We had our own garden. We had our own way of doing things. They were very important in their community because their grandmother and great-grandmother were literate when many of the people surrounding the area were not. 
we're talking the early part of the 20th century, from 1900 to 1915. Um, and so that sort of another way home um, and the way my mother used it um, just seemed to me a very rich kind of term that it could be used to express uh, the way she chose to make decisions about her life and the way she encouraged her children to make decisions about our lives. And so I really wanted that title ultimately. The University of Chicago Press thought that they needed a title that would um, make immediately present that the work was interested in the implications of race and in the implication, the local context of Chicago as a city. That's how they market things. They'd be marketed under books about Chicago, books about race, books about mixed race, and so forth. And I understood that. So finally, we came to that subtitle. Uh, there were there were a number of options for it. Mm -hmm. The mixed race in your family is is uh, white, black, and Native American. Native American. White is Protestant and Jewish. So there were many streams within my family, and uh, you know, it's it's. I think one of the difference. I think many, many, many people have that kind of complication mm -hmm. in their background. Mm -hmm. uh, some don't even like to talk about it. Um, mm -hmm. Some don't like to think about um, how it needs to be to live. All those streams need to live with each other inside mm -hmm. a person. Don't need to discard any part of your heritage. Um, in order to feel like a whole human being? Those mm -hmm. are questions I got asked all over the country <laughs> as I was marketing my book. Yes, and I understand that you did, uh, you spent quite a lot of time on uh, book tours. Several years, actually. How, how many? Uh, because I had contacts all over the country, and, uh -huh. um, and, they, and they grew in the way that my work grew. Uh, mm -hmm. If I did a a program, one of my daughters was living in Berkeley, Oakland, California at the time, got me a, a reading at a famous bookstore in Berkeley. And I, two people there then asked me to come to other places to read. Mm -hmm. And it went like that everywhere. So <laughs> that's another theme of, of your life. If, if along oh. the way, just a few ideas got changed, uh, then I feel like I've really done my work. Mm -hmm. So one, okay, I have one more question, but Gail, do you want to chime in here? At any? Well, I, the, the question I have, Ronnie, is you have a fascinating story, and I, I can see why Catherine was so interested in your in, in interviewing you and I'm just sitting here listening. <laughs> so, but I, I, th I just, it's a comment really. And it, it's just that I can see from listening to you and from reading about you that you're, you have been, uh, a, you have made a difference in every institution, every organization that you have ever worked 
And it's because you have such a, a grounded attitude around who you are. And I think that you are offering our listeners a terrific perspective. Well, that's, that's extremely generous uh, to say. I, for my own assessments, I do feel that my parents did a phenomenal job of grounding their children. And, mm-hmm. and I, I don't even know how they did it. My, my sister and I talk about that. How did they do that in the moments that they were living through? And how did, how did they keep a kind of profound sense of personal value, uh, that each child had a personal value? And that uh, your life had boundaried, of course, by social distinctions and social um, restrictions. And that within that, you had this tremendous importance and value and potential. And I don't, I don't know how you do that. I have one sort of side thing to say about that notion that one reason Christianity appeals to me as a religion, although I am, or a set of religious understandings, that's a better way to think about um, even though I know a lot about several other religions because of studying, the whole sort of Christian idea that you are at once profoundly important as a person and what you do is profoundly important, and you're also profoundly not important uh, mm-hmm. in the larger mm-hmm. scheme of things. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that yes. You have to hold those two things together in one hand, you know? And so, you know, I, I think before I even had a language for it, those um, ways of thinking had power for me. Mm-hmm. Wow. Let's, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Gail, for that too. So uh, just one last question, Ronnie, and that is what we ask every guest, I guess, is what what do you experience as advantages of being older? What are you asking? What do you what do you experience as uh, the advantage advantages of being older? Um, well, I, I think there it's hard to, to talk about them or think about them without also thinking about the disadvantages. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah. for certain. Uh, I, I think, obviously, the obvious advantages are you've had more experiences. And if you have enough humility, you keep learning all the time. And, of course, it's just like adding things to a casserole. I mean, like, you've got a big base, and you, and you learned new things to try with that. Uh, And so everything is much richer uh, as you grow older. Uh, I find that very much so. Um, I think your patience level, if you're lucky, can grow um, simply because you've had more experiences. You know more about people, uh, human behaviors, human um, actions, human decision-making. So you just know more. And the more you know, if you're lucky, if you reflect well on it, you become more patient. So 
uh, I think that that's really important um, to know more languages and how people act. The, the bad part of it, I think, is that your experience is sometimes um, not respected because of an automatic assumption that anybody that old can't have anything valuable to add. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's real, that one has to, black people sometimes talk about this as part of being black, and women sometimes talk about that as part mm -hmm. of being a woman, that you have to work harder to get the respect um, that you should get automatically or that you did get automatically when you were younger. Mm -hmm. I had to go recently to Apple, that fabulous glass building on the river down there, mm -hmm. having all this trouble. And the way mm -hmm. that I was handled is what I call it, at the beginning of my encounters there was strictly so ageist. People mm -hmm. were talking to me as though I could, didn't have a mind. And it, it grew as we talked. It got to be okay. And they began to say, oh, okay. I understand what you're talking about. She understands what she wants to do. And it just took 10 or 15 minutes. Mm. Uh, and and it, that's just one example. It has happened on some boards of directors that I've been on. Um, that's where 10 years ago, if I was on that board, I was really seen as a valuable resource. And now a lot of younger people come on and there's a kind of tolerance, you know, a tolerant attitude um, mm. that, okay, you know, we'll listen to you more like that. Um, so I think getting older is, uh, is demanding. I think it's, it's, it's been very interesting for me. Oh, that's wonderful. Single-handedly, you're going to change how people think about <laughs> older people. We appreciate you. <laughs> we do, as I certainly empathize with that yeah. experience. You feel you have to work harder? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's that tolerant attitude, yeah. the platitudes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, Ronnie, I, w I really am reluctant to draw this to a close, but um, we must, and we just, we thank you so much for being with us today and sh giving us a glimpse into uh, extraordinarily rich and um, fulfilling life that you continue to lead. So thank you. Thank you, Ronnie. And listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our community through our Facebook group and join in on our monthly Zoom gatherings. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com. <laughs>